Chapter Five of The Figure in the Carpet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicholas Clifford. The Figure in the Carpet by Henry James. Chapter Five. When I spoke to George Corvick of the caution I had received, he made me feel that any doubt of his delicacy would be almost an insult. He had instantly told Gwendolen, but Gwendolen's ardent response was in itself a pledge of discretion. The question would now absorb them, and would offer them a pastime too precious to be shared with the crowd. They appeared to have caught instinctively at Vereker's high idea of enjoyment. Their intellectual pride, however, was not such as to make them indifferent to any further light I might throw on the affair they had in hand. They were indeed of the artistic temperament, and I was freshly struck with my colleague's power to excite himself over a question of art. He'd call it letters, he'd call it life, but it was all one thing. In what he said I now seemed to understand that he spoke equally for Gwendolen, to whom, as soon as Mrs. Erme was sufficiently better to allow her a little leisure, he made a point of introducing me. I remember our going together one Sunday in August to a huddled house in Chelsea, and my renewed envy of Corvick's possession of a friend who had some light to mingle with his own. He could say things to her that I could never say to him. She had indeed no sense of humour, and, with her pretty way of holding her head on one side, was one of those persons whom you want, as the phrase is, to shake, but who have learned Hungarian by themselves. She conversed, perhaps, in Hungarian with Corvick. She had remarkably little English for his friend. Corvick afterwards told me that I had chilled her by my apparent indisposition to oblige them with the detail of what Vereker had said to me. I allowed that I felt I had given thought enough to that indication. Hadn't I even made up my mind that it was vain and would lead nowhere? The importance they attached to it was irritating and quite envenomed my doubts. That statement looks unamiable, and what probably happened was that I felt humiliated at seeing other persons deeply beguiled by an experiment that had brought me only chagrin. I was out in the cold, while by the evening fire, under the lamp, they followed the chase for which I myself had sounded the horn. They did as I had done, only more deliberately and sociably. They went over their author from the beginning. There was no hurry, Corvick said. The future was before them, and the fascination could only grow. They would take him page by page, as they would take one of the classics, inhale him in slow draughts, and let him sink all the way in. They would scarce have got so wound up, I think, if they hadn't been in love. Poor Vereker's inner meaning gave them endless occasion to put and to keep their young heads together. Nonetheless, it represented the kind of problem for which Corvick had a special aptitude, drew out the particular pointed patience of which, had he lived, he would have given more striking and, it is to be hoped, more fruitful examples. He at least was, in Vereker's words, a little demon of subtlety. We had begun by disputing, but I soon saw that without my stirring a finger his infatuation would have its bad hours. He would bound off on false scents that I had done. 
he would clap his hands over new lights and see them blown out by the wind of the turned page. He was like nothing, I told him, but the maniacs who embrace some bedlamitical theory of the cryptic character of Shakespeare. To this he replied that if we had had Shakespeare's own word for his being cryptic, he would at once have accepted it. The case there was altogether different. We had nothing but the word of Mr. Snooks. I returned that I was stupefied to see him attach such importance even to the word of Mr. Vereker. He wanted thereupon to know if I treated Mr. Vereker's word as a lie. I wasn't perhaps prepared, in my unhappy rebound, to go so far as that, but I insisted that till the contrary was proved I should view it as too fond an imagination. I didn't, I confess, say, I didn't at the time quite know, all I felt. Deep down, as Miss Erme would have said, I was uneasy, I was expectant. At the core of my disconcerted state, for my wanted curiosity lived in its ashes, was the sharpness of a sense that Corvick would at last probably come out somewhere. He made, in deference of his credulity, a great point of the fact that from of old, in his study of this genius, he had caught whiffs and hints of he didn't know what, faint wandering notes of a hidden music. That was just the rarity, that was the charm, it fitted so perfectly into what I reported. If I returned on several occasions to the little house in Chelsea, I dare say it was as much for news of Verica as for news of Miss Erme's ailing parent. The hours spent there by Corvick were present to my fancy as those of a chess-player, bent with a silent scowl, all the lamplit winter over his board and his moves. As my imagination filled it out, the picture held me fast. On the other side of the table was a ghostlier form, the faint figure of an antagonist, good-humouredly but a little wearily secure, an antagonist who leaned back in his chair with his hands in his pockets and a smile on his fine clear face. Close to Corvick, behind him, was a girl who had begun to strike me as pale and wasted, and even, on more familiar view, as rather handsome, and who rested on his shoulder and hung on his moves. He would take up a chessman and hold it poised a while over one of the little squares, and then would put it back in its place with a long sigh of disappointment. The young lady at this would slightly but uneasily shift her position and look across, very hard, very long, very strangely, at their dim participant. I had asked them at an early stage of the business if it mightn't contribute to their success to have some closer communication with him. The special circumstances would surely be held to have given me a right to introduce them. Corvick immediately replied that he had no wish to approach the altar before he had prepared the sacrifice. He quite agreed with our friend, both as to the delight and as to the honour of the chase. He would bring down the animal with his own rifle. When I asked him if Miss Erme were as keen a shot, he said, after thinking, No, I'm ashamed to say she wants to set a trap. She'd give anything to see him. She says she requires another tip. She's really quite morbid about it. But she must play fair. She shan't see him, he emphatically added. I wondered if they hadn't even quarrelled a little on the subject, 
a suspicion not corrected by the way he more than once exclaimed to me. She's quite incredibly literary, you know, quite fantastically. I remember his saying of her that she felt in italics and thought in capitals. Oh, when I've run him to earth, he also said, then you know I shall knock at his door. Rather, I beg you to believe. I'll have it from his own lips. Right you are, my boy, you've done it this time. He shall crown me victor with the critical laurel. Meanwhile, he really avoided the chances London life might have given him of meeting the distinguished novelist, a danger, however, that disappeared with Vereker's leaving England for an indefinite absence, as the newspapers announced, going to the South for motives connected with the health of his wife, which had long kept her in retirement. A year, more than a year, had elapsed since the incident at Bridges, but I had had no further sight of him. I think I was at bottom rather ashamed. I hated to remind him that, though I had irremediably missed his point, a reputation for acuteness was rapidly overtaking me. This scruple led me a dance, kept me out of Lady Jane's house, made me even decline, when in spite of my bad manners, she was a second time so good as to make me a sign, an invitation to her beautiful seat. I once became aware of her under Vereker's escort at a concert, and was sure I was seen by them, but I slipped out without being caught. I felt, as on that occasion I splashed along in the rain, that I couldn't have done anything else. And yet I remember saying to myself that it was hard, was even cruel. Not only had I lost the books, but I had lost the man himself. They and their author had been alike spoiled for me. I knew, too, which was the loss I most regretted. I had taken to the man still more than I had ever taken to the books. End of chapter 5